episode of Exeter Real is made possible by our friends at Fab. Experts in personal hygiene and beauty, this Exeter-based family-run business has been trading for 21 years in the professional hair and beauty sector. When coronavirus descended on the UK earlier this year, the team responded quickly and effectively, adjusting their business model to address their clients' changing needs and to welcome new ones with a range of PPE products and specific contactless hand sanitizing machines. Fab is committed to a disciplined buying process that provides both their local and national customers with a range of quality, fairly priced products. You can reach them through the links below in the notes, drop them a line and they'll make sure to look after you. Huge thanks to the entire team at Fab for their support of the podcast. I think the the life, the sort of the wildlife out there were really intrigued with what Doris was because, you know, we were just so serene and like rowing our way through that the whales would come up and properly circle around the boat. They'd dive underneath. Sharks would stay with us for weeks. Birds would come and land and literally land like right next to me, right next to my shoulder and just hang out for, for the rest of the night whilst we were rowing. And, and you just, you suddenly had such an appreciation that we were in their world for a change rather than animals and life being in our world. Um, and it was really special and it, it sort of, yeah, I loved, loved that, that they'd accepted us into their, their environment and they looked after us and the, the fish would follow us. Hello and welcome back. This is Exeter Real. I am Tracy Duke and this is where leaders create leaders. Produced by Felix Northover and recorded in current circumstances via Zoom, we ask the question, what does it take to thrive in a world of both challenge and opportunity? And most importantly, how do we build the resilience and leadership skills to get us there? In this unprecedented time of global change, we as leaders, entrepreneurs, and change makers need to dig deep and draw on our innate abilities to problem solve, innovate, and instill a sense of calm to lead with confidence. And now more than ever, we need to be getting clear on facts, differentiating between what's real and what's hype, and building common sense conversations around the truth to make the best decisions for those relying on us. And more than ever before, we need to bring our focus back to our own mental health and wellness in order to bring our skill sets to the table and to continue thriving. Extreme athletes, deep sea divers, polar explorers, astronauts, all extreme occupations that move beyond the known, push boundaries and challenge expectation, more often than not bringing about intense hardship and risk, where errors in judgment will almost certainly lead to death. This period of lockdown during COVID-19 has allowed time and space for me to catch up on some must-see documentaries, including Reese Witherspoon's retelling of Cheryl Strayed's epic solo trek in Wild, the Dawn Wall, the story of Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgsen's staggering free climb of El Capitan's most formidable rock surface, and Losing Sight of the Shore, the epic record-setting Pacific Ocean crossing by a crew of six women back in 2015. These gripping, outstanding examples of human endeavor led me to question what lies behind the psychology of extreme sports. What is it that enables an ordinary, everyday person to commit and complete the extraordinary, life-threatening feats? And most importantly, why? 
My guest today is Laura Penhall, a physiotherapist and extreme sports athlete, one of a crew who set a world first record by rowing across the Pacific Ocean from America to Australia, a phenomenal feat that took in total nine months and was the subject of the documentary Losing Sight of the Shore. The record setting crossing was certainly not without its challenges. Technical issues in the first 10 days saw them abandon the attempt and return to dock in America after years of planning and investment. As Laura herself states, it was a moment of critical decision-making as a team and as a leader. And for me, it was a significant learning point of having to outweigh pride and personal want with putting our team first for the success of the journey. My conversation with Laura today will explore the psychology behind this phenomenal journey and asks the question, is there something truly extraordinary within reach for us all? Laura, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome you to the podcast today. Um, I, first of all, I've got to ask you, how are you doing? Yeah, very good, thank you. And thanks for, for inviting me onto this podcast. I've heard a few of yours now, and yeah, it's, it's, um, I'm very honoured to be on, so thank you very much. Uh, thank you, thank you. Well, I mean, it all came from that, um, from a LinkedIn post that Chris Bentley put out. Oh, bless him. Yes, yeah. A oh. shout out for your documentary. And I watched it with my boys. And well, I mean, I've told you this before, just, just like everybody else, just utterly gripped, totally oh. gripped. So thank you for getting in touch with me as well. And I'm so pleased to be doing this. But how, how are you feeling anyway? How's lockdown treating you? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a difference, but I kind of, I find it a bit hard to sort of comment some, you know, there's so much uh, difficulty in this space and time that people are going through. Um, that I find it a bit sort of unnerving to kind of give an actual honest, <laughs> an honest response. Cause in, in really in seriousness, I guess for me, it's the first time I've ever been in one place for a long period of time, apart from obviously when we're out, out on the boat for nine months, that's slightly different. Um, but you know, normally with work, I'm traveling everywhere and I don't think I've spent more than a week in, in one place for a long, long time. So for that it's been great and my partner's down here with me in Cornwall as well so I mean we've we've had sort of seven weeks in the same place in the same house like it's been um you know I suppose our relationship I know and our relationship I'm sure could have gone one of two ways and thankfully it's gone the positive way so um, <laughs> no it's been it's been great and I'm I'm home in Cornwall so um I can't complain you know I'm, I'm home and on the coast and able to still work from home so, do you yeah. feel relaxed you look certainly look relaxed Oh, that's the crazy thing, isn't it? It has kind of forced that what's important and just, you know, structuring your day where you're not commuting and you've got, you know, I've now back into better exercise rhythm and, you know, cooking at home, all the basic things that, that help us mentally sort of tick that, yeah, I'm just really enjoying. So um, it definitely has um, been sort of actually quite a good opportunity. We're recording this during Mental Health Awareness Week. Mm, um, yeah, and exactly. you know, has right. there honestly ever been a time when any of us have been more aware of our yeah. of our health and exactly as you say, what you know, what matters, what truly how we're feeling about things? Oh, well, that's it, and it just helps you to be mindful, doesn't it? At that time, you know, the row taught me a lot about that, and um, you've just mm -hmm. you don't know. It's, there's a lot of things that are going on at the at the minute have been going on for the last seven to eight weeks of out of our control, and so therefore. All you can do is control what's right in front of you and, and yeah. sort of hour by hour, day by day. So um, it's, in a way, it's been quite centering to, to just be in the moment for a change. I think we're for always sure. planning 
forward thinking. So that was some incredible training to get you through this time. Nine, nine months <laughs> on a boat prepared you really well. <laughs> well, there's also that that flip side, you know. Uh, when I do the the direct comparison of isolation in a in an ocean rowing boat, you know, I've got we've got running water, I've got a, a big bed, and I've got a shower, and I've got food in the Easy. fridge fresh so I'm like yeah I've got space so even if it's a tiny little cottage it's kind of feeling very spacious compared to a 29 oh, foot room exactly <laughs> relatively luxurious okay Laura, oh. let's let's talk about that incredible epic crossing and mm. I want to talk about you know mental health will come up a, a lot during the conversation mm. but I want to take you back to the start line and the morning that you set off mm. and you know you're waking up you know after years I think I'm writing saying was it four years that you spent preparing for it I mean probably you spent a mm. lifetime in some way or another preparing but it was about four years is that right that's right yeah it wasn't intended to be four years but yeah it was definitely it's, a few failures along the way to get to the start line but yes four years in, in yeah. total in the end. failures or lessons I like to think exactly okay so it's the start so it's the morning you're finally leaving you're waking up how are you feeling are we was there anxiety was there let's just get the hell on with this how was it yeah there there was by that point it was kind of anybody that's done a sort of expedition before when it's not something that's massively you don't have a full support team around you that's running the show for you like you're involved in the organization as well as doing it um it means that those last few hours few days are just so actually full-on you think you'll get to the point you try and you know i was trying to approach it like a wooden athlete in tapering and thinking right let's make sure we've got a couple of days with family just beforehand and everything's done and dusted but of course anywhere it's been in the expedition world that isn't the case it's like you're running around till two three in the morning you know you hardly get any sleep so your preparation is is actually physically usually a bit poor um and it's all quite frantic and you're like oh i just need to get going and you know what what are those last little bits that you've forgotten or could we add this could we add that could we could you do a few bits and pieces so definitely for me that the morning of the day that we were due to go or we went um we were due to leave in the sort of midnight hours of that day um, because of the wind being the, the sort of the lowest going out underneath the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco um, and trying to time it with the current going outwards rather than obviously we wouldn't be able to row against it. Um, so our timing was going to be the midnight hours and that morning we actually had to get the boat because things have been delayed we actually had to row from across the bay in San Francisco across so from Alameda uh, so from Pier 36 across to across to just underneath the bridge and um we thought it was only going to take us a couple of hours of course the wind picked up and it ended up taking us five or six hours so we ended up having to row really hard uh on the very day that we're due to leave that evening which was not not the intention so yeah there was a there was a bit of bit of tension there there was a bit of anxiety of like just making sure we got to the start that literally to the start line um but because we had done that it also gave us a bit more confidence in being able to finish like to do that together as a team and then our family were there we had some celebrations we had a little bit we had an hour or two with family separately and then it was it was all guns blazing for that midnight sort of set off and even then we were still tweaking until about two o'clock in the morning and then we're like right let's just go I just need to get this done yeah 
so there was definitely yeah there's definitely an element of relief by the time we did push off because I was like right you know it's been four years in the preparation like now I'm just it's only going to be six months and then it's all done with <laughs> so I mean that's kind of mentally to be perfectly honest that's where I got myself to and I was like all we've got to do is row eat sleep repeat and look after each other as a team like this is just just get this done and obviously as you alluded to in the introduction those first 10 days ended up being some of the toughest <laughs> which is the classic oh so so there was a technical problem wasn't there that meant that you had to go back to shore. So you were 10 days in, yeah. you realised that something, how, you know, that, we know that, that kind of, the, that, that any energy in the body is stored in their stomach. That's the gut feeling. That's the nervousness. That's the sick yeah. feeling. And it's yeah. just basically energy. How, how were you feeling when you just, was it, was it sick? Was it yeah, like? It was. Yeah, it was a multitude of stuff, really, because it was the first 10 days. So that moment going from this feels like a massive relief, like we're going, we're gone, we're cracking on with this finally, yeah. lasted maybe about four or five hours before I then was quite uh, profusely seasick. <laughs> and I don't know whether that seasickness came a uh, collaboration of tight fatigue, because we literally only slept a couple of hours the night before, and well, a few nights before uh also the the sense of maybe adrenaline sort of release i don't know there could have been some physiological responses that were going on there but it um it then unfortunately lasted for a good eight to ten days so um combined with that and then i was hallucinating on a few of the nights we had we went straight into a uh two big tropical storms off the coast of south uh, san francisco within 48 I think it was our day three most probably at sea we were in quite we were big 40 foot sea conditions and stuff so everything was kind of thrown at us within those first 10 days so by the time it did get to that point when you know we, we were checking we had sort of a wave that had come into the hatch and like flooded the cabin and it wasn't until about a day later that we realized there was water in in the electronics hatch and um and then I suddenly as we saw that, I then suddenly noticed the electronics were, were on, you know, it overheated and were about to be on fire. They had all um, melted. And so that point then, very much my thought and feeling, again, was, yeah, was a, a gut instinct, was a gut feel. Um, and I was, I was, I was, yeah, <laughs> how can you sort of say that I was gutted? I suppose that's, that's the only way to describe it. And I, um, it felt like a massive, a big failure for me and a, a sense a loss of pride as well so I felt like we were the, this pink boat of all women that classically were trying to prove that we could do stuff and um and yet 10 days in we're gonna we're having to make decisions to whether we turn back in or not um so I had to really weigh up the fact of the decision I was making for us as a team whether it was the right of the for the project for the team versus my pride because I initially wanted to continue forward. I was thinking, you know what, we've, we've prepared for this. Uh, this is what we're here for. Um, but I had two of my team members that were going to continue with me from Hawaii and Samoa that wanted to turn back in and felt like we needed to fix the boat. So I had to really weigh up, um, yeah, their considerations and also thinking it's what's best for the team, not what's best for me as an individual. Yeah. Which meant then when I sort of made that decision, uh, for the next couple of hours, I was yeah, I was in a bit of a dark place because I think it all culminates to you know it was four years to get to the start line that only myself in the boat had gone through, 
and then to have those first 10 days the way that they were I sort of started to ask myself the question of oh crikey is this it is this the universe trying to really you know I know that those other challenges have been a test to sort of really test if I can get around it but now am I being really naive if I just not listen to what the universe is trying to tell me that I shouldn't be doing this so the doubt so setting in and that's what definitely definitely and that was the first and only time to be fair where i well there's another time but that was the main time that i really questioned what what we were doing and was i it was a being stupid was i putting our lives at risk um um but then that's the strength of our team you know the sort of within two hours later we were shifting it around and we were saying you know what that was it's not a failure it's just been practice we've just now practiced in the biggest seas and two big storms uh, we haven't got this in the Cornish season. We've practiced at home. Um, so you know what? This is it's it's given us the practice we've needed. Let's reset the boat. Let's restart, um, and actually let's start the proper journey from Santa Barbara. So it was all all of you, all four of you, and the team that you had around you as well. Your support network. You just kind of sat you down, and together, it was okay. Let's think about this logically. Yeah, definitely. There was there was definitely a. Yeah, we had a process. So the the good thing is we'd work with a psychologist for I've certainly been working with a psychologist for three, four years prior. So through the lead up and then during it and I've I've worked with them ever since. So it, we'd already put plans in place of on dry land, we'd said, right, decision making process, what are we what are we gonna do? How are we gonna operate as a team? And one of the things around our decisions was gonna be if we've got time, if it's not time sensitive then the you know the question goes to the team collective if we've got a unanimous decision then that's obvious that's what we do if it's split um then the decision then comes back to me as as the team lead and so the problem that we had out there when we when we had flooding in the cabin and we had had this sort of risk of fire on the boat um and lost all our electronics it wasn't immediately time sensitive it wasn't like oh god the boat was sinking you know it was okay let's just stop let's dry everything out let's just pause a minute we don't need to go forwards or go backwards we can put the parachute anchor out let's all just gather ourselves for a second and and sort of slow this down make sure there's not a fire on the boat let's do the emergency bit first and then we can layer on top of that the decisions so that's what we did and then we sort of had a little team get together all round in a circle out on the on the deck and um and I was like, right, well, I guess we've got, we've got two options here. We've got one is we carry on and this is what we've prepared for or two, we turn back into Santa Barbara. And that was after speaking to Tony, our shore support saying that that could be an option on the table. So uh, I put it to the team and just that was the classic. You had two that wanted to turn back in and two of us that wanted to crack on going forwards. Um, and that, that was the point of when I was like, right, okay, now the decision lands on me, but then can I feel comfortable to take the ownership on making those two in particular wanted to go back in to push forwards mm -hmm. and, you know, further things happen. We were only 500 miles offshore and we had another two and a half thousand miles to row still. So the chances were it was going to be a pretty uncomfortable row then to Hawaii more so than what we'd planned for. And the problem I had then is to outweigh well, those two that wanted to turn back in, I've got a risk now that if we get to Hawaii, they'd be, you know, this first leg could be so horrendous that they don't want to continue anymore. And therefore the whole project of getting to Australia suddenly is, is under, under risk. Yeah. So um, that's basically where the decision lay to in my head and the process that I went through of going, right, this isn't, it's not about my personal 
pride and my personal decision making this is about our collective and so therefore I kind of had to swallow that and support what the girls wanted and in the essence like and that was the strength of our team they you know they they showed me actually that was what was the best decision to make in the end Um, but if it wasn't for them I, I most probably wouldn't have made that decision well, your first test is a real leader as well. You came through it. Collectively, strength of the team. I think that's the key, key thing there. I wouldn't necessarily say. There's definitely learning points I've taken from that, for sure. And, um, and the big learnings for me were just take a pause and, and just really check, check myself on what was my decision being, being swayed by. Was it pride versus was it what was best for the actual project yeah. and for the team? Oh, but I wouldn't God. say that was my, my natural instinct to start off with. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but, you know, not every leader does know the answer straight yeah. up. You don't have to know, um, you know, all the right answers immediately. Yeah. It is a learning process. I want to talk about fear because, you know, fear is the thing. We know this that stops most of us. Fear is the thing mm-hmm. that stops every great idea. <laughs> I don't know what this, this stat is, but it was like 90% of ideas never actually happen because of that fear, um, which, which is always amazing. But, you know, fear is a thing that stops us. Yeah. It can, um, you know, it's just that kind of deep, innate barrier that, that most of us will have felt. What, if you sat down and thought about the biggest fears of that challenge, even if they were irrational, what would they have been? There, well, there, there are plenty. I think um, leading up to the row, uh, for sure, there, you know, by not leaving any stone unturned and by really thinking through all the what-if scenarios and my listing sort of what my fears were going to be. So, for instance, from the, the obvious of falling overboard and getting separated from the boat and, and being lost at sea, you know, is, is your worst extreme to uh, the other extremes of, you know, thinking we were going to be caught by pirates or, you know, somebody sort of being really vulnerable out there, being four women on a boat and, and uh, yeah, other, another boat coming alongside us and stuff. And um, so there were, some, there were some, some irrational, but also some real things where you've just got to go, well, if I didn't think and I didn't plan through some of those what-if scenarios, I most probably yeah it, I would still have quite a significant fear in mind yeah. so by actually writing down what the fears were what the what if scenarios could well be really helped me to then put in a process of okay well let's go there let's go to worst case scenario then what can I do to help to mitigate that and what am I going to do to prepare myself and prepare us as a team for that situation mm-hmm. um, and that's where we drew on the strength of a, of a team called survival wisdom down in in Plymouth and survival wisdom guys are all sort of ex-military they're you know ex-military hostage negotiators and do all sorts of types of um, extreme training basically for people to to sort of understand and and sort of figure out the processes to put in place and and it was it was really really useful um, because it started to to help me identify like what are the things to recognize and then what what processes we would put in place but I mean you know the only the flip side of that is when I say about you know I had this fear of us being an all-female crew and and pirates for instance coming to the boat well I had exactly because I'd mapped that out so vividly in my head 
and I'd gone through it in the what if and then what I was gonna what stuff did I have on the boat what was going to be my action what was going to be my process in the third leg as we just set off from Samoa I actually did think it was that we had pirates near the boat that were coming towards us mm-hmm. so I went into automatic mode of shouting to the girls to do the communication I grabbed a flare you know I had a flare ready in my hand I was screaming at one of the other girls to grab you know the deck knife and stuff in case oh like God. I automatically went into this like right we need to action this and um and then sort of and was really quite sort of fired up and thinking crack this is this is going to happen because basically there were these suddenly the pitch pitch night uh, this boat came out of nowhere with no lights on, put the light on, and there were five people in the water in with snorkel masks on right next to our oars as we're rowing through. And so I thought they were snorkeling over to us, and I thought they were going to jump onto the boat. Um, so, yeah, so I went into automatic mode. And then in the meantime, my teammate, Matt, that was on the oars with me, she'd continued to row. And uh, as I'm sort of like... Literally, I was about to shoot a flare into these guys. I was like, if anybody goes to step on the boat, like that's kind of what my reaction was going to be. And um, and anyway, we carried on rowing. And then suddenly the next minute we've actually passed, we've gone past them. There's nobody around us. It's back into pitch black night time. We could see the light drifting off in the distance. (laughs) We figured out afterwards that actually we just came across, you know, illegal nighttime fishers. Um, just off the coast of Samoa and that's why they didn't have their lights on and they didn't want to disturb the fish and technically we've rode right through them so the poor people were completely harmless but I like went into this whole pirate mode and um, was totally irrational but (laughs) so uh, yeah there could have been headline headline papers uh, back in the UK of of UK pink boat shoots um, shoots innocent people with a flare <laughs> could have been horrific but thankfully thankfully I didn't <laughs> I was able to pause enough you I know I know shocking <laughs> oh my goodness I'm laughing oh, just imagining you in that situation I mean your adrenaline I can't even imagine what it would have been like yeah, no, I say my adrenaline was definitely through the roof. The, the, the other girls, bless them, that were on the boat, I don't think knew what was going on. Um, I think I definitely uh, like flicked into a, a bit of an irrational, highly adrenaline-fueled space. <laughs> and, um, and it wasn't until afterwards uh, Natalia was just like, okay, we're okay, everything's fine. <laughs> it's all good, it's all good. But coming back to your point you mentioned before, um, around fear, because I think... I think there's a big misnomer that people don't have fear and it's all about context I think so and it's what you prepare for and it's how the experiences that you've had so you know one of the fears I would have had on the boat is if we capsized and we got trapped in the cabin and we would have to flood the flood the cabin to swim out to sort of come back up to surface yeah and and I knew that that was a very real and an understandable fear that you know you feel claustrophobic or whatever um uh, but the thing is is we can either avoid it or we can listen to that and try and then practice and put some processes in place so i would have liked to do like the helicopter that there's a thing that um people in offshore oil rigs and the military guys do 
where you you're strapped into an old helicopter shell and they they immerse you in the water and you've got to wait till the, the helicopter fills up with water before you can unclip and get yourselves out um and i really wanted to do, i didn't want to do it the thought of it scares still to this day would make me feel quite nervous and scared but i also know that understanding what that thought and feeling is actually really helps you to, to step forwards with some certain things Massive. and um right. and i think the other the other thought i had around that fear factor bit is it's really interesting in the context isn't it of you know you, you interview quite a few rugby players from what i see and what i understand yeah. and you know the thought of me standing on a rugby pitch when you've got the whole pack charging down at me would I would be mortified and I know I definitely would have full-on adrenaline running through me to be like thinking that I was just going to be massively squashed however that's their norm you know they've practiced that they know that they don't it doesn't even that you know wouldn't even bat an eyelid to those those guys because they're experienced in it but it's what you can cut you take them out of that context and it's fascinating to sort of see when people aren't you know if you're a rugby player if they're not a rugby player on a pitch but you stick them on a you know, a horse, for instance, they could be absolutely petrified on, on a horse. And it's different context. It doesn't mean to say that they never experience fear. Gareth Thomas, I think it was, said about how he was so scared about riding a horse. And I was like, it's that, that's your, that there captures where fear is in context. Yeah. Or, you know, people just will assume that because you've done something that you're then therefore resilient to having fear. One of the examples I was thinking of is, you know, take any one of those rugby players out of the context of where they're comfortable, put them into a networking event, for example, and they'll just freeze. Not all of them, but some of them, because it's so far from what they're used to. And so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. But the, the more often you yeah. practice what you're fearful of and put yourself in that position where... Um, you know, you've, you've got, I, I guess, the reference points to refer back to, and then whatever position it is, gets easier for you. So, Laura, let's talk a little bit about the pressures that you would have been feeling on that boat as an individual and, and obviously as a collective team. Because, um, you know, if we think that, you know, even, even just doing a circuit of the British Isles can be fatal. You know, we know if, you know, once, you know, dehydration, fear, anxiety, you know, that they all impair the ability to make decisions when you're under pressure. But did you ever find yourself in a situation where you felt fearful in any way for your mental health, where you felt the decisions weren't being made fast enough? Or did that episode you just told me about, about the, the potential pirates, prove to you that you were okay <laughs> i think there's a couple of things there so you you're saying about the the, the more sort of impact on our mental health sort yeah. of state i guess the point at which uh i'm starting to have i was starting to keep myself amused uh when i was rowing on the oars and i'm you know i was doing a bbc voiceover to to birds flying in the distance I, that definitely made me question whether i was uh <laughs> i was still still as is sort of sane but um but no <laughs> but the um yeah and no, i think overall the good thing was you know we, we you, you've got the strength in the team to sort of really recognize and be able to reflect um back to each other you know where we were sitting so we had a really good open and honest sort of 
language between ourselves in that you know when we when we did start to flick into that different type of personalities our, our you know behaviors were starting to change and adapt we gave each other the what's the word that not the authority but the the openness and the um we basically had said to each other that if we notice that we need to call it out so that you know it doesn't become something that's that's bigger than what it is and an example of that would be you know the girls would say I had a Laura number one Laura number two personality and so I often my Laura number two would start to come out when I'm getting a bit tunnel visioned and I'm, I'm going into that sort of assertive space and I'm really starting to plan and and things I feel are sort of maybe out of my control and I'm really having to I get a bit more assertive and sharp and, and cold and less empathetic. And that's my outward behavior changing based on the fact that I'm actually starting to get concerned underneath it all. And I'm thinking about, well, crikey, this, this, and this in my head, and we need to get to here by this point. So, but instead of communicating that, I might change my personality and just start getting a bit, a bit more Laura number two, as they would say. So the good thing there is the, the girls would then self check and be able to say back to me, you know, you're starting to show Laura number two like what's what's that all about oh. and vice versa we would do exactly the same with each of the girls on the team everybody had their telltale signs I absolutely love that so basically you were all given permission to call everyone out if you felt that there was a problem without judgment without criticism it was just the permission to call out and to say something because otherwise yeah it was little little fears or, or worries grow from acorns and before you know it they're out of control which is just actually exactly the same in everyday life when you're working in a high performing team or sort of you know there's so much change going on it there's you just don't understand what people are going through personally like you know there's so in a workspace you're only seeing a sort of you know a, a capture about sort of 30 percent of what who that person is and so for us to make such big judgments on on what's going on in their life from the outside is 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 pretty harsh so i think the thing is is either do you take the time to be able to get to know the person or can you develop sort of that openness within your team to be able to to really sort of pick out when you think that behaviors are, are out of the outside of their norm yeah. and really sort of then have that empathy to understand it could be impacted by other things in their life whether it's a family member or it's finance or it's you know stuff going on at home basically that's influencing their behavior when they, you see them at work i always think back to the, the the quote to assume and um the idea that assume is to make an ass of you and me so when you start assuming when you start thinking when you start making up these scenarios in your head mm. about what the situation might be that's when everything goes wrong so actually if everybody has permission to be able to either ask the yeah. question or just speak honestly, what a difference that would make. On the boat, for sure, I, if you had an issue with someone, then you, you dealt with it with that person. Mm. I never wanted like a triangular sort of approach. I didn't want somebody to be sort of, you know, a little bit miffed by somebody else's behavior and then telling this other person over here. And then suddenly like, you know, all of this goes on over here and oh I, that has always been something that I never get involved in um in life <laughs> in general anyway so I certainly didn't want that on the boat um and the girls would always say that I you know they call me bat ears because as soon as I heard any whispering I'd be like right what you know who's whispering what have you got to say like make sure everybody can hear it 
so that there was none of that kind of behind closed doors or sort of small little conversations going on um because that yeah that easily just starts to create create rifts so the openness the honesty the creating a platform to be able to have those those conversations was something that was quite key Okay, Laura, so we're going to jump into talking about sleep and in particular the um, polyphasic sleep that you had to kind of undertake on this journey. And if I'm right in thinking, it was you were doing two hours on and two hours off yeah. for the whole journey. Is, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Apart from the, the sort of points when we would be in a storm and we had to put the drogue out and, um, and yeah, batten the hatches, then yeah, we were, we were two hours on, two hours off, uh, consistent for 257 days. That's Let's see. incredible. Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, we had um, Stephanie Romajewski, who's a sleep expert, and she does quite a bit of work with Channel 4 and the media. And we were talking about this then, actually, and the long-term effects of sleeping basically in bite-sized chunks yeah. um i mean in normal everyday life it's not particularly the most social thing to do but actually gets you through when you're on a nine-month row but i mean how did that affect you and how how easy was it to adjust to sleeping like that knowing the way our sleep cycles work so it's kind of i think it's about 90 minute sleep cycles that we would normally do isn't it yeah how, yes exactly well to be fair i mean that that is it. You either go for the very short cat naps to just give you that little bit of a top up, which you're talking 10, 15 minutes, or you try and get a sleep cycle in. So that's why it was the two hours sort of the two hours on, two hours off, because it enabled us to ideally get a 90 minute sleep cycle in um, and gives you 15 minutes sort of either side to get into the cabin to either get some food in or, or, you know, sort yourself out and get yourself back on the oars on the other side of the, the 90 minutes. So um, yeah, that, that was partly why we did two hours uh balance with the fact of how long you could stay on the oars for as well okay. um but the yeah how long did it take us to get it, it it was surprising to be honest like i if you speak to a sleep expert they and rightly so they'll say that you can't necessarily train yourself or prepare yourself to to do that type of sleep patterning but i think on a personal level i did practice getting up in the middle of the night doing sort of two hours of rowing in the middle of the night you know before going on on the row um and it was because but I think it gave me a lot more psychological preparation than it was necessarily the physiological and the hormonal changes that you get with with sleep um so uh, I really I found that beneficial because I think it just gave me the confidence to know that I could do it um and I think to be perfectly honest we you do do it. Those have, that have got, you know, you, you're saying you've got two young, two young kids. Three, no, three, three sorry. grown up now, actually. Oh, <laughs> well, well, back in the, if they're grown up. Back in they the day, young. I remember, <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> you well, don't, say, don't yeah. that in a hurry. <laughs> I bet, exactly. And I'm, I'm sure, I mean, I've got a number of friends and family and stuff with, with young kids that, you know, that, that 90 minute or those sort of sleep cycles, that can go on for much longer. Some people are very lucky to have kids that sleep sort of from a young age and some people really aren't and it could be three four years before before their kids get you know they get a solid night's sleep again so I think there's elements of uh you know we all go through it it's just whether you've gone through it by choice and obviously yeah we, we chose to be out there and to do it that way um I found I kind of found that I, it didn't take too long to snap into it but we all had slightly different 
different knock-on effects. I mean, I hallucinated horrendously for, for quite a bit of the time. And I thought maybe it would only happen maybe once or twice at the beginning and then I'd get used to it, but it didn't. It was, unless I was really stimulated, cognitively stimulated out on the oars, I would start to drift off and I would think I was wide awake, but I'd go into this hallucinatory space. And so I, there were a number of stories, even now I can see them as, as clear as day. And, I was, and I'd literally be moving, but I would think I was still rowing. So okay. we would, I'd be on the oars and I suddenly thought that um, one of the girls who wasn't even on the boat, I thought she was sitting on the top of the, the, the boat. And I reached back and I thought I was picking up some gloves for her and I was giving her some gloves. And um, in between that, you know, and this is all quite vivid in my mind. And I, you know, I thought I was just carrying on rowing and I was chatting to her. And it wasn't until my teammate behind me said, Laura, what, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm just, and then suddenly I woke up, you know, I was suddenly aware that my hand was reaching up to her and there's nobody, nobody there. But I, I could vivid, it was so vivid and so real that, you know, I really thought it was happening. And um, that happened quite, unfortunately, quite frequently for me. And uh, one or two of the other girls had a few episodes themselves as well. Um, but yeah, I, I would be really determined to be sort of like staying awake and staying on it and being sharp. But if it was a quiet, tranquil sort of night, I'd struggle in that space. And so we had different things that we would do to try and keep ourselves alert. Um, and that might be sharing stories or, or whatever we might do on the oars. But, um, but yeah, otherwise, if it was rough and it was stormy, there's no, yeah, I was certainly awake. There's no way I would have, I would sure. have sort of drifted yeah. off during those sorts of times. Okay. Um, but yeah, so otherwise, I mean, and also when we finished, when we finished the row, like, or we finished at each stop, I thought, oh, maybe we'll be continuing to wake up every two hours. Yeah. But we didn't, we just straight away got solid night sleep in as soon as we as soon as we got into a bed so it is quite amazing how quickly your body adjusts oh yeah it has to yeah it does it knows what to do yeah definitely and there's there's been a couple of times where i've gone sorry interrupted but the um i did the two hours on two hours off for the row but then also for like mark beaumont's when we did the cycle around the world and I was supporting him you know i'd only sleep for about three and a half four hours at night we'd finish the cycle say at like 10-ish maybe and then by the time I'd sorted stuff out I'd get to bed maybe about 11 30 12 and then I'd be getting up again at 3 3 30 in order to prep and then getting back on the bike at 4 a.m and then I'd only do sort of one cat nap in the day to to keep myself sort of topped up okay um, so yeah so it's and that was 80 days so you, you yeah it's it's definitely doable it's doable, but at what point can you be um, sort of clinically described as being sleep deprived? Did you ever yeah. get to that? I mean, that's a tough place to get to, I know. Yeah. Oh, no, definitely we were. Yeah. And I think the, the sleep deprivation, you know, the difference is there with, say, rowing, rowing in particular was that we just had to row, eat, sleep, repeat and look after ourselves. So the... But I mean, the key thing is you still needed to be able to snap into making a decision if if things were to. were going to get tricky. Yeah. But the um, yeah. there wasn't a huge amount of additional cognitive load on the outside of it. So, for instance, then with you apply that to Mark cycle, he was sleep deprived and he was the athlete that was having to work himself hard. And um, I needed to minimise the 
the bandwidth going into him. You know, I needed literally for him to just keep the wheels turning. I would think I would take all of that cognitive load away from him. He didn't have to think about when he was going to fuel, when he was going to drink, what clothes he had to wear, what he had to do. Everything was always stepped and laid out in front of him to minimize how much cognitive load he had. Uh, and that, you know, he, he had two, three bike accidents during the 80 days. Two of them, I would have said, were potentially related to sort of, you know, uh, severe fatigue and that sort of, you know, sleep deprivation sort of state. Um, and yeah, you uh, travelled with him as, as his physiotherapist, didn't you? Yeah, as his, but yeah, sort of did more. I mean, the physio bit was quite small. It ended up being more just managing his whole sort of performance and putting that bubble around him um, for the for the duration. But um, but yes, I, I travelled with him and then uh, had a colleague of mine, Claire, came in for about six days. So I took a, a break halfway through uh, to sort of get my energies back up and to get a bit of a sleep sleep boost um and then yeah rejoined again but um but yeah that 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 sort of cycle it was more than more than the 90 minutes but yeah. less than kind of a, a good yeah. block so that that sort of did feel a bit a bit harder and then the knock-on effects from that would be I really did notice my cognitive my thought I had it all so rigid and planned out what I was doing with Mark but then as suddenly as soon as sorry as soon as we were getting near an airport and I had to think about packing planning getting you know kit and other st logistical stuff so it took me away from that sort of really rigid structure and bubble that I was in in the camper van as soon as I had to go wider I suddenly forgot about <laughs> what I was having to do on the road so I didn't have that agility in the headspace. I could not multitask I could I could only do one thing one basically thing, okay. yeah I get that I get that Wow, that's a that's a whole other story in its own right. I need to. Yeah. Um, I want to take you back to those tranquil nights on the boat, mm. um, when there's no hallucinating going on. It's just you and the open sky and the open water and and whichever of your teammates was there um, with you. Because I, you know, I, I can imagine that there would have been the most intense hardships of times, but there had to be on that nine months some really mm. beautiful, poignant moments that stayed with you. What, when you look back, which is the one that jumps out at you most? What's the moment that you that will stay with you? Oh, Other than finishing. Is, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, exactly, for sure. There was a few. There was one that I always reflect on that that moment and it was nighttime that was actually nighttime and it it was it wasn't too sort of rough to see and i i did a sat satellite phone call from the middle of the pacific back to my old school where i was when i was about 8 oh. and whole school there was like 400 kids and i had this satellite phone call with them and they'd done a fundraising thing all day for us um and that was really special to speak to speak to some of those kids that was really really touching and to think i was like you know I was in your shoes. I was eight years old. I was in that school. Like, yes, you're in the, you're in the sort of depths of Cornwall. That does not mean that the world's not your oyster. You know, I'm literally yeah. speaking from the middle of the Pacific. So, um, yeah, that, that was really, really special to sort of speak to them and to hopefully land that message. Um, and then there's other times when the other kind of key moments, like you say about the nighttime, I mean, it suddenly does it is put into perspective out there when everything is the whole sea is so flat and you're like a mill pond. absolute mill ponds. Yeah. And you can see the stars. It's like a moon 
moonless sky and I mean the sky is ridiculous out there I mean it's just expansive and you just feel like you're surrounded by this full-on glitter of of uh, stars and satellites and but I mean it's all 360 all around you and then this this pan pan sea which is reflecting the, the stars in the in the sea as well and I mean those moments were were yeah few and far between but they definitely really stuck um stuck in my mind to be fair and then again the wildlife the wildlife was something special you know you were we were part of we were part of the wildlife so as in you know doris our boat had a had a dark sort of underhole paint so i think the the life the sort of the wildlife out there were, were really intrigued with what doris was because you know we were just so serene and like rowing our way through that the whales would come up and properly circle around the boat they'd dive underneath sharks would stay with us for weeks birds would come and land and literally land like right next to me right next to my shoulder and just hang out for for the rest of the night whilst we were rowing and and he just you suddenly had such an appreciation that we were in their world for a change rather than animals and life being in our world um and it was really special and it, it sort of yeah I loved loved that that they'd accepted us into their their environment and they looked after us and the, the fish would follow us and yeah no that that was definitely very special yes beautiful wow the, the only thing that I can imagine I remember being my very very early 20s when I traveled across Australia and I did a um I was not on a boat for nine months. I did a 24-hour stagecoach trip, but out into the outback. And I remember the vastness of that sky and the blackest of black and the stars were brighter than you can ever imagine. Yeah. Almost like they were shining for you. And yeah. it's actually, I mean, that was years ago. I was like 30 years back. But those moments just don't leave you. It was what connected me a lot to to home you know to to family to sort of know especially when the moon was there you go well it's the same moon that it's I'm looking at as, um, what my mum's looking at at home so that was that was yeah always a bit of a connection between us which was nice oh wow just amazing uh, okay so we're we're kind of coming into the so you've done two two, two stops one was at Hawaii one was in was it Samoa that's it yeah you stopped That's in right, and there was yeah. a risk that you were going to miss Samoa wasn't there at one point yeah you're on the final leg of your journey and um and heading for Australia what are the what are the learnings the main learnings that you took from that trip that you will apply now to everyday life you know what I guess I want to ask you what surprised you most about yourself during that journey. Yeah, well, no, big, good, and big questions. They, um, there, there were a number of things that I would say I, I took as learnings. One of the biggest, biggest things, though, is development of self-awareness, without a doubt. I mean, as a team, as a collective, it was something we really worked on. Is that you know, our, our aim, our, our sort of goal, was very much to finish the row as a team like it was not success for us to finish the row and walk our separate ways that would be massive failure for us so team was our number one goal and, and staying cohesive in that and, and being effective in that space and um and so yeah that that kind of in order to be effective as a team you you have to be open to feedback you have to be um 
open to develop and it it sort of really helped me to further and continues to further my understanding of my own self-awareness and mm. and the biggest base of that was you know I've constantly encouraged the girls to give me feedback give me critical feedback and and sort of put the mirror up to me often so and it was credit to them to be able to say to me sometimes like well you know Laura you're going into Laura number two mode and it, you know they'd be able to place it or word it in a way that wouldn't completely rattle me if I was in, in a bit of a rattled space so uh, those sorts of things really taught me you know what were my triggers how how was I what were my thoughts and my feelings during that time how could I control it how could I adapt myself to then deliver a message without being really reactive um, and that's been extremely powerful uh, going forwards for sure and it's, you know, it's self-awareness is, a, is an ongoing development forever, isn't it? Which is great. But I, I certainly, certainly learned an awful lot about myself during that time period. Um, I think um, I, was, I always say every day is a school day and we're constantly learning. And it's what can I do today to improve my tomorrows? Mm. But also what can I do better today that I didn't handle so well yesterday? And I think... Um, I mean, we were talking about we were talking about gratitude earlier. I think off camera we were talking about gratitude and just how mm. important it is to be so appreciative of those lessons, the hardships, everything else. Because yeah, you know, the time we don't, but later on we can look back and just understand how powerful those learnings were. Yeah, yeah, and no, be exactly. grateful and be yeah. grateful for them. Yeah, um, so. Um, you know, I remember watching you, I wasn't there, but I did watch the documentary. I did see you dock. I know that there was a, a few little problems when you got there, you couldn't land in quite the right place, etc. And yeah. I mean, I felt that emotion for you, for the whole team, for your family, for all of you. I mean, God, I'm rubbish. I dwell up <laughs> now I'm just thinking about it. But, you know, how did you cope? So you get to the end. Um, did you did you have ever at any point fear for the end, sort of fear for stepping back into everyday life again and how you would adjust? Because that's your own world for nine months. And then all of a sudden you're having to, to readjust. Did you find it hard? Or, or yeah, no, I think I mean no, I think it's all valid. It's a very valuable question. I think if you asked each of us as team members, you'd get a different answer. So I think if you asked Natalia, my teammate, she was very comfortable and very at one being in, in the ocean and being there. Um, I, I always thought stepping onto the boat that my thought processes would slow down a little bit. Uh, I, I have this image in my head that I've got two sort of crazy monkeys that like work overtime because my <laughs> thought constantly like bouncing and ideas and thoughts. And uh, it's very, for my mind to be quiet is very rare. And, um, and I thought, oh, being out in the Pacific, I'm sure I'll get those, those quiet spaces and I'll really relish them. And in all honesty, I, I didn't. I mean, it might have drifted off into like daydreaming or whatever, but I felt like my mind was always quite active. I was always thinking about, you know, sort of planning on the boat, where we were, planning for the future. You know, what, what will we do when we get to Hawaii? What will we do when we get to Samoa? What do we do when we... You know, when we left Samoa, I'm thinking about the finish. And when, as I'm coming into finish, I'm thinking about, right, when I go back to work, I need to consider this and this. And then we've got the games. And I was always, I've always been that type of person that's sort of 
planning ahead and I guess the strength of of Matt in that space she was great at trying to help to sort of center me and make sure I enjoyed the journey and wasn't too too far forward and just completely missing it um and you know I'm so so grateful for her to be to be part of the the rogues I think if if she wasn't I wouldn't have necessarily captured as many memorable moments I could have easily just been head down for that six the nine months um but for me yeah I I to be honest I I Oh, yeah land couldn't have come sooner <laughs> it, it, you know I mean let's face it when I when I was we were setting off from San Francisco for me it had been four years to get to the start line and it had been three postponements so actually when we pushed off in San Francisco in all honesty I was quite this sounds most probably completely wrong but it, it's the truth unfortunately I was quite relieved I was like I can't wait let's let's just go let's get this done um, because I was like, well, we've only got six months left now. And then this whole thing is going to be over with. And obviously the ocean had more to it than that. And suddenly, you know, going straight into storms within the first three days, I suddenly realized that <laughs> the next six months were not going to pass very quickly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they were, they, you know, at times they felt like obviously the longest time in my life. But then suddenly when it comes, you're like, well, then that's it. Like, well, I don't, that's what felt really strange of, you know, we do things, you do, I don't know, you might do a marathon or you move house or it's different chapters or things that you achieve that you don't realize they're, you know, they feel like you're in them for so long, but then actually when you achieve them, they've just suddenly gone. Like it's as if that phase of finish just happens in a, in a, in a sort of flash and then you, you're on to the next thing. Whereas when you're in it, you feel like it's going on forever. So it, I don't yeah. know, the proportion of space doesn't quite relate. If that, I'm not explaining that it maybe. Sounds, no, no, no. As a parent of three boys, I totally get you. It feels like it's lasting forever when they're young. <laughs> <laughs> and then you look back and well, where did that go? Totally get you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah bless you. Well, exactly. And it does it. You don't have to row an ocean for that. I think, you know, like you say, we've, we experienced that in, in every different life but it just became so obvious it that became really pertinent to me when when we did finish because I was like well now we're in a bed and like okay well now this is back to normal life and I had I was really drawn to wanting to get back to life like I was lots of my thought spaces when I was out there was looking forward to just a normal you know I could not wait for having you know uh, a glass of red wine in my hand in front of a fire and a good piece of steak um, <laughs> to be with my family and sharing it I just that was something that I was like I can't wait for that day so yeah. then you know when I did move back home to Cornwall and like I sort of got my little cottage I most probably did that for about the first week it was like <laughs> my way through a glass of water and bottle of wine um, <laughs> but I absolutely saved it I couldn't wait for normality I felt like I hadn't actually existed in it for more than the row it was like four years prior to that had been such a constant the row had occupied so much of my my headspace that I just could not wait for it was almost a relief yeah to be honest yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know loved and that, that's most probably what that feeling of the finish was just so overwhelming that I know that I'll, I'll never never get that feeling like, I very much doubt I'll get that intense feeling ever ever again but it was it was very very special for sure do you think that you'll ever miss that high because it would have been a high mm, it would have been just the elation and everything else do 
you know, is it something that you would want to repeat at some point? Not necessarily that journey, obviously, but just yeah. to replicate that high that you felt. Uh, I just, yeah, it's interesting. I, have, I haven't thought about that for a while. And it's, it's a really good question because since then I've struggled to find something that's given me the same buzz. As in, I don't know whether it's the finish, but having, I think it was all about the road that I was so focused and so passionate about it. Like I literally would not leave any stone left unturned. I was so determined uh, to make sure we were able to do the road, but we were doing it safely and we did it as a team. Like everything was all about how we could embody that. Yeah. And since then it's, it's definitely, you know, I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll you know, I'll apply, I'll plow that sort of focus into the games and into other people that I've sort of worked with. And I, I definitely did feel it again with, with Mark Beaumont's expedition. So again, putting the wrap around him, I now got the buzz and the feeling having supported other people. And that's really what my ongoing passion is, is like, that's how I, it's not about my personal journey. Like the reason I did that was to really understand how I could support others to sort of have that rapport, to have that understanding of what it's like to one, to push yourself, but also what do you draw on when you're wanting to give up? Like, how do you keep yourself motivated? How do you keep putting yeah. that one foot in front of the other? And, um, and so now applying that and being able to support others to achieve that gives me the same sort of high um, because I see them achieve and seeing other people achieve actually most probably gives me the same, if not more of a, more of a buzz. I totally get that. I totally get that. Um, and that's probably actually perfect for you, I'd say, right now. Um, mm. What What's next for you? What's uh, obviously <laughs> the plans mm. for everybody have changed this year. Yeah. Um, but what is kind of looking towards the end of the year? What big projects are you working on? Uh, there, there's a few things at the minute where obviously uh, I was supporting um, the British sailing team as the as the lead physio. And Tokyo is due to be this year, so we're we're currently in the process of having to 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 shift everything. And then on a personal level, it's it's to be honest, it's now at that phase where I'm actually really excited. When I say about excited about normality, it's it's excited about just you know having spent some time at home in Cornwall, um, yeah. being part of the RNLI, and and just yeah having a bit more of a daily routine and and getting back yeah. into sort of exercise and things. So, so yeah. And, I think we yeah. underestimate that, don't we? We're Definitely. all so kind of used to, to just rushing about and we've almost, you know, we've had this time to press that reset button. Yeah. Um, and I think that we do, we do take it for granted just how special it is, especially, I mean, I mentioned earlier, we're recording it, it's Mental Health Awareness Week this week. Yes, yeah. But um, it's so important to get that downtime and adjust, reset. Definitely. Yeah, no, I, I totally, totally agree. And I, I think, you know, that's some of the silver lining that's come out of come out of this time period, to be honest. Okay. And I guess, you know, the other, just adding to sort of what you'd mentioned before about, you know, what's what's next, it is that, it is that sort of development of how I can support others in this sort of space. Um, you know, how can, that's the thing that drives me. I just absolutely love, I love people seeing, you know, trying to get the best out of themselves. And, and if I can add a little a little bit of value in in sort of optimizing somebody's performance or getting the best out of them then then great that's that's kind of what i'm i'm really sort of passionate about doing basically perfect laura i think that's um i think it's a perfect place to wrap this one up thank you so much for your time i honestly i i have loved i've 
we, we've actually recorded this over two separate parts um, because mm. we didn't have a great internet connection yesterday but I have really loved chatting to you and learning and you know there's so much more that we can talk about I'm sure um, yeah. but for the moment thank you so much oh, thanks for the interview it's been great so we appreciate you're, it you're welcome you're welcome Laura, it's been an absolute pleasure to get to know you and I truly look forward to, to hopefully working with you at some point in the, in the future. There's a lot of common ground there that I look forward to exploring. Um, thanks so much for listening to my interview with Laura. Remember, you are the solution finders. You are the entrepreneurs, the change makers, the leaders. You don't have to know all the right answers, but your tribes, customers and teams need to hear that it will be okay and that together you can make common sense decisions based on the information emerging each day. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review, hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll come back next Friday for more. And in the meantime, please stay safe, look out for each other, and most importantly, be kind. Mm -hmm.